Twelve of the rarest pearls in the world were on public display this past summer in the Allure of Pearls exhibition at the National Museum of Natural History. The exhibit included the Hope Pearl, previously owned by Lord Philip Hope, the Englishman who gave the name to the Hope Diamond. I imagine some of you ladies particularly are familiar with that. It was the first time the Hope Pearl and the Hope Diamond were together in 150 years. Also on view was the La Peregrina. I don't know if I said that right, but it's one of the largest and most famous pearls in the world. And it's currently owned by Elizabeth Taylor. It was given to her by Richard Burton. Other rare pearls on the exhibition included the Pearl of Kuwait from the Persian Gulf. It's a drop pearl, perfectly symmetrical. And the Persian, uh, the Pearl of Asia, reputed to be the largest natural pearl in the world, and which was once owned by the, the man who built the Taj Mahal. And he built that Taj Mahal, by the way, as a tomb for his deceased wife. I ask a question. What is the most valuable pearl in the world? Those who put on the exhibition did not say. And most of us, I trust, would not have a very good idea of just how to even begin to judge the value of a pearl. But one possible way of telling what is the value, perhaps the most valuable pearl in the world, would be to go to a merchant of pearls, a merchant that knows beautiful pearls, and ask that merchant, is there one pearl that you would be willing to give up everything you own in order to possess it? Then we might have a good idea of just what pearl is the best pearl in the world. Jesus had just such a person in mind when he spoke two parables about the kingdom of heaven in Matthew 13. And for those of you that are here for the first time in a while, We've been, over the last few weeks, going through the parables of Matthew 13, a very significant and critical chapter, and one that I think has a lot of uh, help toward helping us to understand the times in which we live. And so I invite you just to follow along as I read this portion of Scripture. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid. And for the joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now, Down through history, these are two very well-known parables that Jesus told. But they have been the object of a lot of misuse and, in some cases, outright abuse. Joseph Smith, who founded the religious cult of Mormonism, called his supposedly inspired scriptures the pearl of great price. Furthermore, these parables have not only suffered at the hands of cult leaders like Joseph Smith, they have suffered at the hands of well-meaning evangelical Bible teachers as well whose interpretations have robbed Christians, uh, in many cases, of their joy and of the security they have in Christ. So how are we to interpret these parables? What is Jesus really saying in these two parables? 
Now, when it comes to the Bible, very few words can cause more alarm bells to go off in people's minds than the word interpretation. Interpretation. That's not a very good word in our vocabulary, is it? It is a word that has come to depreciate the Bible's impact on our lives. Many people believe the Bible is God's word, but just as many seem convinced that the Bible cannot be understood. Therefore, there is a tendency to quickly dismiss what the Bible says with phrases like, oh, that's your interpretation. Or there are so many interpretations. Who could possibly know what is the right one? That way we can go right on thinking and doing whatever we want. And the erroneous implication is that no one can be sure what God has said because there is no way of being sure what his words mean. Now let's just think about this for a minute. There's something very inconsistent with this kind of reasoning. And it's very prevalent today. And you hear it a lot. For if God cared enough to give us his word, wouldn't it seem reasonable to suppose that he cares equally as much that we understand his word? Doesn't it stand to reason that God made his word very clear and understandable for those willing to take the extra time other than just reading it to consider what it means? The parables of Jesus have especially been singled out as typical of unclear and uncertain message from God in his word. Furthermore, for those with a vivid imagination and an axe to grind, the parables are traps for all kinds of confusing and off-the-wall interpretations that seem to be a million miles from the teaching of the parable, the passage, and the Bible itself. The two parables, two parables before us, the parable of the treasure and the parable of the pearl of great price, have often been the subject of neglect or of misguided speculation and wild interpretation. But that doesn't mean that they are impossible to understand even, or even difficult to understand or interpret. For Jesus himself assumed their meaning would be clear and understandable to the person who would have been listening attentively to what he had already said. I call your attention to Matthew 13, verse 51. And Jesus said to his disciples after he had told them the parables, Have you understood all these things? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Underline that passage. Jesus expected his disciples to understand what he says. And likewise, he expects us to understand what he says. And like the rest of the Bible, not only were these words from God, he intended for them to be understood. That we might know what they mean. I'm hoping today that if there's anything that you walk out the door with, and you will probably not remember all of the details, obviously. But one thing I'm hoping that you will walk out the door with this morning is that you can believe that God's Word can be understood. God never intended for His Bible to be a closed book adorning our coffee table 
or our shelves at home. He not only expects us to read it, he expects us to understand it. And I want you to believe this morning that it is understandable. And it's not just for preachers to understand. We have a responsibility to prime the pump, but it's your responsibility to hear and to take it to heart and to think about it in unique ways. So what is the clear meaning of the passage of these two parables, which Jesus anticipated was very self-evident? Based on what many are writing today about these parables, what is evidence that there's a lot of confusion and speculation about just what these two parables are saying? The problem, however, is not the complexity of the parables, but the philosophical and theological baggage that most interpreters are bringing with them into the study, which have led them to read into the parables things that are not only not there, but which are in direct conflict with the overall teaching of the passage itself, as well as the Bible. For example, the most prevalent interpretation today of these two parables, an interpretation that has plagued the church, by the way, since the early church fathers, is that one that sees both the treasure and the pearl as referring to Christ and his eternal kingdom. In other words, the hidden treasure and the pearl of great price equal Christ and his eternal kingdom, or eternal salvation, if you will. Now, for the sake of argument, let's assume they are right. Now, read with me these parables again in light of this interpretation, and it would read like this. Again, Christ and his eternal salvation is like treasure hidden in the field, a field, which a man found and hid, and for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, Christ and his eternal salvation is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now, what's the problem with that? Anybody want to volunteer an answer? He's buying the pearl. He's buying his salvation. Can you buy your salvation? Can you work for your salvation? I hope that you've been taught well enough that we know that we cannot work for our salvation. The Bible is just absolutely clear that no man is justified by works. Saved by works. And yet, this is the predominant interpretation today among Bible teaching, many Bible teaching people. Here's one very popular author that has a lot of influence, and this is what he writes in his commentary on Matthew. The value of God's kingdom far exceeds that all earthly riches and advantages together. Yet God offers his priceless kingdom to any person, no matter how poor, how insignificant, and how sinful, who trust in Christ. The price is the same for everyone. All they have. The treasure of salvation is not obvious to men and is therefore not something they should naturally seek. They do not understand why it is so prized by Christians and why some people give up so much. 
their self-dependency, sinful pleasures, and sometimes even their social, political, and economic freedom and welfare to gain what seems to be so little. The writer goes on. The true believer will also be willing to pay whatever cost salvation involves. Apart from the willingness to yield all he has, a person's profession of faith is hollow and worthless. And finally, he writes, In both parables, the priceless object was bought at the expense of every possession the finder owned. Interpreted in the right way, salvation is bought in the sense that the person who accepts Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior surrenders everything he has to him. I couldn't disagree more with what that writer wrote. And so if this is not the right interpretation, Pastor, what is? How did Jesus expect his disciples to understand these two parables? In order to discover how Jesus expected these parables to be understood, we will need three things. We will need, first of all, a context. Secondly, we'll need a setting. And thirdly, we'll need the flow of what has just been said. Let's take a look at those. First, we need a context. I remember years ago, I went to see Les Miserables for the first time. How many have seen the play Les Miserables? Wonderful play. My, my favorite play. has a message about law and grace that just is excellent. However, the first time I went, fortunately, one of my friends said, make sure you read the program and get the background. If you don't, you will be lost. I had another friend with me. He refused to read the program. But I read the program. And I understood what was going on. And I constantly get this. What's he talking about? What's going on here? You see, the context is absolutely essential. In the case of these two parables, what was the context? Was Jesus explaining to people how to enter the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven? Or was he dealing with some other point about the kingdom of heaven? In other words, is this a context in which Jesus has been speaking about salvation or something else? Notice how Jesus begins the chapter, chapter 13 of Matthew, this chapter of seven, eight parables about the kingdom of heaven. This is what he says. On the same day, Jesus went out of the house, sat by the sea, and great multitudes were gathered together to him so that he got into a boat and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. Then he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went out to sow, and so on. And the disciples came to him, verse 10, the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered and said to them, Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been given. Jesus makes it clear that he is talking about the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, about things that have never been revealed before in the Bible. How to get into the eternal kingdom of heaven has never been a mystery, friends. Since the beginning of time, with Adam and Eve, with Noah, with Abraham, and so on, down through history, we read that salvation, how to get into the eternal kingdom of God, has always been by God's grace through our faith. 
For instance, we read early on in Genesis that Abraham was justified or saved by faith. Not by works. This was no secret. This was no mystery. It is true that many in Israel had never learned that biblical truth and thought that because they were sons of Abraham and that because they were good at keeping the law, at least they thought they were, that they would have everything they needed to enter Messiah's kingdom. Much of Jesus' teaching was designed to bring them back to the truth that every person must be justified by faith if he is to see the kingdom of God. He must be born again by looking in, looking at Messiah or Christ by faith to take away his sins and create within him new life. But this was not new teaching. Remember when Jesus was dealing with Nicodemus and he was talking to him about the need to be born again in order to see the kingdom of God, to enter the kingdom of God? And then he went on and Nicodemus is asking all these questions. He says, Nicodemus, how are you a teacher of the law and you don't know these things? They've all written all through the Old Testament. This isn't a mystery. The things in Matthew 13 were, were a mystery. They had not been revealed yet. That's the point. So then what is the mystery? Almost every time mystery, the word mystery is used in the New Testament is used in reference to the period of time following Christ's rejection and his reception at the second coming. And his rejection at the first coming and his acceptance or reception at his second coming. It's referring to the period of time we're living in, friends. It's been going on almost 2,000 years. And even if we were taken into the presence of the Lord today, it would continue for another at least seven years until he actually returns visibly, physically to this earth. In Matthew chapters 1 to 11, Jesus presented himself as Israel's king. In chapter 12, the religious leaders said, we reject you as our king. And the people were listening to the religious leaders. In chapter 13, Jesus begins to spell out for his fathers what will happen to the kingdom of heaven on earth between his present rejection and his future reception when he returns in power to set up his kingdom. Do you recall what he said to the high priest? Here he was being tried and going to be sentenced to death by crucifixion. And the high priest asked him, he was the Messiah, and he answered and he said, Yes, I am the Messiah, and hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting on the clouds at the right hand of power and coming, with, coming on the clouds of heaven. He was looking forward beyond the cross to the time when he would return to this earth. So what will happen to the kingdom of heaven on earth while he would be seated at the right hand of God of power on high before he came back to this earth in the clouds of the clouds of heaven to reign forcibly? That's the mystery. What will happen to the kingdom that came down from heaven with him and which was spread to spread over the entire earth until all men submitted and obeyed him as Israel's Messiah and King of Kings. Now that he was going back to heaven, to the right hand of God the Father, what's going to happen to this kingdom? He came presenting himself as king, promising a kingdom. Where, where's the kingdom? 
now that he was going back to the right hand of the Father, will there be any followers? After all, you have to have a king. You have to have followers. Will there be any followers of the king? Jesus? What kind of followers will they be? Who would they be? How would they honor him? That's all what the parables of Matthew 13 are about. We've been looking at them, and I'm not going to belabor it. But it is through the parables of Matthew 13 that Jesus takes the veil off the mystery. And it is through the parables of Matthew 13 that Jesus lays out just what will take place between his rejection at his first coming and his reception at the second coming. And that's the context that we need to keep in mind. And if we don't have it, we won't understand these parables. Second, we need a setting. How has Jesus organized these parables for his audience? You always need, when you read the Bible, you need to understand who it was written to. You need to know a little bit about them. That's why at the beginning of a book of the Bible, even if you just jump in the middle of the book, start by reading the little introduction in the beginning of your study Bible and get a feel where it talks about the recipients, that is, the people that receive the book, the letter, the prophecy, whatever. And find out a little bit about them because in understanding where they are, you're going to understand better what he meant to say. And that's a clear case here. He had two audiences. And the structure of Matthew 13 is basically nicely divided between the two audiences. Let me explain what I mean. Matthew 13 consists of seven basic parables. And as I mentioned previously, the first four parables were spoken in the presence of the multitude, most of whom could care less about the point Jesus was trying to make. The last three parables were spoken in the presence of his disciples only, who couldn't have cared more about finding out just exactly what Jesus meant by all these parabolic stories. The two different audiences make for a natural division in the overall emphasis. Now, in the first four parables, as Jesus looks out over a, over a crowd of people who were really indifferent to learning anything about God or about spiritual truth. They were there, as I've said before, for other reasons. Jesus shares four parables that teach truth, which is increasingly pessimistic picture of the future. He's looking out at a crowd of people who don't have ears to hear, he says. They don't have eyes to see. They don't give a rip about anything spiritual. They're there for the dog and pony show. And Jesus says, looking out at that audience, he lays on them four parables which present an increasingly pessimistic view of the, of the future for the next 2,000 plus years. The last three parables he shares with his disciples. And now as we approach the parables of the treasure and the pearl of great price, we need to take into consideration this context and this setting. First, we should expect that Jesus will be telling us something about the kingdom in his absence. That's what we learn from the context. 
The second thing we learn from the setting is that he will be telling us something that will be helpful to his disciples because he had them present and he cared about them. He wanted them to understand and they wanted to understand. And so he should be saying something that will be encouraging to them. So these three parables should give encouragement. They should also tell us something about the kingdom in his absence. In the first instance, he will be telling us something about the kingdom program promised in the Old Testament. But specifically, what will be happening to it and within it during the absence of the king from this earth. In the second instance, he will be telling his disciples, his present disciples and future disciples, something that will help them as they deal with the pessimistic future, something that will help them see that there is some joy here, something worth getting excited about, being encouraged over as they look at the future. Now, that is what we should expect. Is that what we will find? Let's keep that in mind and let's go to the next third thing that we need to have in order to understand this parable. And that is we need to know the flow of what has just been said. And that takes us back to verse 36 to 43 in Matthew 13. And that's the parable of the tares. Let's just look at it briefly. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. He's alone with his disciples. And he answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sins of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and destroyed, so it will be with the wicked people at the end of the age. And then he adds something that just sort of comes out of the blue in verse 43. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. What's going on here? Where will, where will these righteous people shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father? Where will they come from? They just jump out of this final conclusion, concluding part of this parable. Where do they come from? After all, we have been talking about a gigantic corrupt kingdom that is full of tares and birds who possess evil, false doctrine. Where do the righteous come from? That is the basic question that seems to be leading him on to these next two parables and to set the stage, if you will, for the parables of the treasure, the hidden treasure, and the pearl of great price. Now we have at least three things to look for, to keep in mind as we seek to understand these two parables. First, what is he telling us? What is he telling his disciples about the kingdom program in his absence? Second, what is he telling his disciples to encourage them? Thirdly, what is he telling his disciples about the righteous who will shine forth in his kingdom, his eternal kingdom? Now let's look at the parables. Verse 44, we come to Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. All right, we have three things here. We have the field, we have a man, and we have treasure. Let's, first of all, plug in the equivalent of what the field is by going back to verse 37 and just a few verses back when he said the field is the world. No reason not to take... And draw a parallel there. 
So let's assume that the field is the world. And let's take verse 37 and realize that just as the Son of Man was the, the sower of the sons of the kingdom, the Son of Man is the person here who is going to buy the field. And so we have the field equals the world, the Son of Man equals the man in the parable of the hidden treasure. Now we're going to solve, get to some algebra here, we're going to solve for X. X is the hidden treasure. Now what is there out there in the field of this world, of the peoples and nations that the Son of Man found when He came to this earth and would rehide in the same field and then go out and sell all that He had, even His very life, And then go and purchase that field when he returns out of the peoples and nations of this world. What would it be? Any ideas? Israel. The nation of Israel. Throughout the Bible, God's made it clear that he has a pro for all the nations of the world, but particularly the nation of Israel that will be sort of at the center of His eternal reign over this earth. God had a program for the nation of Israel. When the people rejected Jesus, the Jewish people rejected Jesus in, at the time of, of His death, He made it clear that judgment would come upon the nation. And obviously these were not people that we'll see someday in heaven. But he did not disown the nation. Israel. This is the first thing he found when he came to this earth. He found this treasure. He was a Jew. He was an Israelite. Jesus was a Jew. He was an Israelite. Then at his rejection, he proclaimed judgment on the nation. When they rejected him, he said, you're going to be judged. He was talking about temporal judgment. It occurred in 70 A.D. when Titus went in and basically annihilated Judah and Jerusalem. Judgment came. Now, it also says in the Bible that during this whole period of time that Jerusalem should be trodden down by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles would be fulfilled. So he, in reality, when he rejected when he judged Israel, he rehid it in the earth. Then he went to the cross and died to make it possible for all men, Jew and Gentile, to be just and righteous before God through faith. Then one day he will return. He will claim his treasured people, the Jewish nation, now made up of righteous people through faith in him as their Messiah, and he will usher them into the kingdom, the messianic kingdom, the eternal kingdom, which, he will, which will be spreading over the whole earth and which will involve all nations and all peoples and which he will possess. And this interpretation harmonizes well with many scriptures. Consider Exodus 19.5. If ye will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar people, a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. 
Notice Psalm 135, verse 4. The Lord has chosen Jacob, that's Israel, unto himself, and Israel for his peculiar treasure. Furthermore, this interpretation fits reality. Israel, for the past 1,900 years until 1947, in our lifetime, for many of us, has been truly hid in the nation's of this earth. And even to this day, where, where, are, where, was, where was Israel prior to 1947? They were everywhere. We think, well, Nazi Germany? Yes, they were in Russia. They were in Iran. They're in America. They're in China. They're everywhere. Buried, if you will, in the nations of this world. Even today, Israel is not recognized as a treasure by the world. Yet Jesus, we are told in the Gospels, came with a specific purpose of redeeming Israel. Remember what it said? You shall call his name Jesus because he will save, first of all, his people from their sins. Yes, it goes on and teaches that he'll save all people from their sins. But first of all, he came to save his people from their sins. It was Jesus, therefore, who sold all he had, his very life, in order to buy this treasure, Israel, and to purchase it with his own blood. He died. He paid a price to secure in this world a nation that one day he will draw out of this world as a peculiar treasure, the nation, the nation of Israel. We're not talking about individual salvation here. We're talking about the nation of Israel, which is a separate teaching and program of the Bible. Now, how does this fit the context? What does this tell us about the kingdom during the king's absence? Israel will be hidden in the present age, but will emerge at the end of the age. A treasure that Messiah is coming to claim. Second, how does this encourage the disciples? How does it fit the setting? He has not rejected the nation, although they are rejecting him. They will be regathered and ushered into the promised kingdom, although for a while they will be hidden among the nations of the earth. Now, you're a Jewish disciple. They don't know yet. It's not been made clear yet that they're going to become a part of another body in just a few weeks. But right now, what they're concerned about, what about our nation? What about the Jewish nation? What's going to happen now? And Jesus is saying, be encouraged. Be encouraged. I'm not done with this nation. I'm coming back to get this treasure. Right now, I'm going to pay for this nation's salvation. Thirdly, how does this fit the flow of what he just said? Where do the righteous come from in Messiah's kingdom who shine forth? Part of them will be the redeemed Israelites who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, according to the book of Revelation. Let's look at the next parable. The parable of the pearl of great price. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all he had and bought it. Wow. We have two elements here. We have the merchant and we have the pearl of great price. The merchant here, let's equate that with following the pattern of the previous two parables that he told. Let's equate that with the Son of Man again. 
Make Jesus the merchant. Now what's the interpretation? It says the merchant, or Jesus, the son of man, seeking beautiful pearls, seeking something lovely and of great value, something that would glorify him as a pearl adorns and glorifies the neck of a beautiful woman, something that would be formed from an injury because a pearl is formed by a grain of sand that irritates the membrane of a, of a clam. And that's what begins the process. So something in the way of a pearl that would be formed out of, a, of an injury and which would grow lovely and increase in size over time, something that would require Jesus to go out and sell all that he had in order to pay for this pearl. Any ideas what that pearl might be? Here's some scriptural clues. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20, written to the church at Corinth. You were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. 1 Peter 1, 18 to 19. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, speaking to the church, the churches that were dispersed around his region to which he was writing. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who were once not a people, but now are the people of God who have not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. The pearl of great price equals the church, which again our Lord purchased with his own blood, and he will obtain one day when he comes to claim this greatest of all pearls, far more significant than the whole pearl or the Kuwait pearl, or the Asia pearl. So how does this fit the context? First, how does this help us to understand the kingdom of heaven in the absence of the king? Out of this gigantic kingdom full of corruption in which tares grow and birds nest, there is a pearl of great price being formed out of the death and resurrection, the hurt, the injury of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that pearl is the church. There's something to look at and realize that not all is lost. Second, it should encourage us. How does it relate to the setting? It should encourage us to dwell on the quality of the pearl because the beauty of a pearl is not in its size, it's in its quality. Realizing that although it will grow, it will not grow in comparison to the kingdom which is big and corrupt. It does grow, but it grows preserving quality. Lastly, what does this have to do with the flow of what has just been said? It answers again where the righteous will shine forth in the kingdom of their father. Who are they? Where did they come from? Part of them come from the nation of Israel, part of them 
come from the church redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. It all fits so well, Pastor. But so what? What difference is this really going to make in my life? May I suggest to you three ways this can impact our lives today. First, don't believe the lie that no one can really know what God has said in the Bible. Because there's no way of being sure what it means. After all, there are so many interpretations. This is so similar to the first lie that was ever told on this earth in which the devil appeared to our parents, our first parents, and said, Indeed has God said. The devil wants the last thing, and I believe in a personal devil, a Satan. The last thing he wants is for any of us to read this book. But if we read it, he wants us to be thinking about other things. Never understanding what it means. And continually excusing ourselves by saying, I can't understand it. It's too hard to interpret. And there are so many interpretations. That is a lie of the devil. Yes, there are many interpretations, but all interpretations are not created equal. From God's viewpoint, there's just one interpretation that's right. And we have a responsibility to find it. And yes, there will be some portions of Scripture, very few portions of Scripture, that we will be troubled by and argue over. But overall, the Bible is so intelligible, so easy to understand. It's not a hard book. It just takes time and work. God, from God's viewpoint, there's just one interpretation, and we need to find it and not make excuses. And if there's anything that I want you to leave with today, it's this. Believe that God intends for you and for me to understand his word. The Bible is not a closed book. Second, don't get down about the times in which we live. Yes, the mystery form of the kingdom of heaven between the two advents of Christ, the two comings of Christ, will become a monstrosity full of corruption and evil. We see it everywhere. We see so much false teaching, false beliefs, false religions that go under the umbrella of Christendom. Let's not get discouraged. Jesus is coming back for the pearl of great price, for His church, for us, that we may adorn His neck for eternity and serve Him and enjoy Him forever. When I was a young man, I recall when I was 20 years old, people would say, oh, you've got, you're just so young, you've got your whole future ahead of you. You've got such a wonderful future ahead, and now I'm 60. And the future's looking really small on this earth. But then I read this, and I realize, wow, I do have a great future ahead of me. And if I drop dead right this minute, my future is just beginning. And lastly, 
It all fits so beautifully. But the final issue for some of you here today is not for you to marvel over how beautifully everything fits, but to ask yourself, where do I fit? Where do I fit? Am I part of this pearl of great price that will be plucked from this world one day by Jesus Christ himself and that will adorn his neck forever? Do I belong to his universal church made up of all believers who have put their faith in him from Pentecost to the rapture, as they say? Am I part of his bride, the bride of Christ? The Bible uses another figure of speech. Or have you rejected him and anything to do with his church? Are you part of that chosen generation, that royal priesthood, that holy nation, that special people that will one day shine forth as the son and the kingdom of their father? Do you feel comfortable calling God Father? The Bible says as many as received Jesus Christ as their Savior. To them, God has given the right to become His children, even to those who believe on the person of His Son, Jesus Christ, who were born not of their own effort, but who were born again by the will and work of God. And because we put our faith in Christ, we cry out, Abba, Father. I love you, Father. Oh, Father, hear me. I call you Father because I'm one of your children. I trust today that you'll put your faith in Christ and know that at the instant you do, that you can call God your Father, that you can know that you're part of the the pearl great price that Jesus will one day come and pluck off this earth. Father, help us today to take to heart what your word has taught 